Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 19th, 2013. Yeah, I can't keep up. <laughs> Heresy hurricane season is... We got like multiple storms brewing, blowing. It's oh, a mess. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out out there. We document it, and then we open our Bibles and see if... What people are saying is true. Unfortunately, over and again, we're finding what people are saying in the name of God, people who call themselves Christians, um, don't, doesn't line up with Scripture. And uh, one of the constant um, uh, drums that we beat here at Fighting for the Faith, if you want to put it that way, is the idea that um, unless God reveals himself to us, we don't have any definitive data regarding God. Um, in fact, um, over the weekend, um, discovered a fascinating document by the uh, church father Eusebius, who's uh, famous for his uh, ecclesiastical history. But uh, he was an apologist in his own right, and uh, he, there's two documents in particular that he wrote, which are actually a little bit difficult to track down. Um, they are his preparation for the gospel and his demonstration of the gospel. But, um, you know, so I was you know, doing the nerd thing over the weekend. And, you know, I was reading in particular theological works and I was checking footnote references. In fact, um, this, this is a good habit. If, if you want to study theology, a little sidebar here, um, you want to spend as much time in the heart of a theological text as you do in the footnotes. Footnotes uh, oftentimes are, are where a lot of the really good, 
leads are for tracking down ideas, histories, theology, apologetic works that uh, that that have kind of fallen out of use, but are still useful. So you know, I was doing footwork, uh, footnote work, and uh, and you know found references to uh, Eusebius's demonstration of the gospel and uh, preparation of the gospel, and uh, I, I found them online. And was reading his preparation for the gospel, and it wasn't a document that, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, I wasn't prepared for <laughs> for his preparation of the gospel. Um, it, it, the, the reason being is that it reads like, um, well, a, a, a an encyclopedia of the ancient pagan religions uh at his of his time prior to his time of the middle east and and uh, th- literally there are documents that Eusebius quotes verbatim in his preparation of the gospel that um don't exist today so he he's quoting uh, documents that are called they call it non-extant these are non-extant documents and the only way that we even know that they existed is because uh is because well he quoted from them extensively now all of that said what's the important of Eusebius's work the preparation of the gospel actually it's fascinatingly uh important and here's the reason being when you read an ancient document like that that sets about to create like an encyclopedic reference to, and it's really long, uh, to what the ancient pagan religions believed, taught, and did, um, what you find as you read through what ancient people believed regarding these, you know, different deities and things like that, what you find is, is that, well, the human imagination truly can run amok when it comes to things that are supposedly spiritual and there's no consensus there's no the, the names of the deities are all different what they what they do what they're for how they came about how the world came about how you uh, you know uh, whether or not they're angry or mad at, at humanity how to placate them if they're angry um you know wh- how they bless you or curse you all, all of that i mean just crazy ideas and you read through you know you re- I, I didn't read through the whole document that in fact it would be very difficult to do in a weekend but i <laughs> spent a, a couple hours just enthralled with just the craziness of what many pagans ancient pagans believed regarding the origins of the universe and the deities and things like that and um it's clear that uh, I, I think it was martin luther who said that the human heart is an idol factory and that's not i-d-l-e it's i-d-o-l the human heart is an idol factory and that means that it makes you know spits out different idols and things like that like crazy but as christians we do not rely upon our imaginations we do not rely upon our opinions we don't go looking for god in strange places we are not pantheists or anything of the store of the sort in fact if God hadn't revealed himself to us, we would know very little, very little about God, and there would be very little that any of us could agree on regarding God, and I would put forward as proof that my thesis is correct, uh, the objective evidence of uh, the crazy, bizarre uh, religious uh, notions, concoctions, and ideas of uh, the ancient pagans of the world. 
And uh, and so that would be objective proof that you know we you know, without a direct revelation, without something definitive, we're pretty much at sea without a rudder. Um, we can be blown hither and yon by all any of the latest popular uh, concepts and teachings. But we, the good news is, as Christians, is that while well, we we're not left to speculate, we're not left to um, you know basically come up with these things using our own ideas or imaginations or what's popular, we have the revealed Word of God, and in there we have what uh, comprises the faith once delivered to the saints. And it's real simple. It's really simple. If you are rightly handling God's Word and teaching what God's Word says, um, then you're teaching sound doctrine. Doctrine being a word that basically means teaching, okay? And if you are saying things that are different than what Scripture says and teaching doctrines that are not what Scripture says uh, but something different, then you're teaching false doctrine. You're teaching um, untrue doctrine. You may even be teaching flat-out heresy that could land somebody in hell. And and there's different degrees of error, by the way. I mean, uh, and so the idea is, is that you know, there it just might be somebody not quite understanding a context of a particular passage, and it's just not rightly understanding a biblical text, all the way up to twisting the text, making it say the opposite of what it says, and then you know building a theological system that is completely innovative and based upon the ideas of the person putting it forward. And what we're finding in uh, many evangelical circles today is, well, what we're finding are there are many many people who are Christian leaders who are Christian authors who are Christian pastors who are teaching well um doctrines that do not have their origin in God's word but really their own little minds and this is a formula for none other than idolatry in fact if your theological system you know whether or not you call it a system or not um, you know, is basically a, a series of doctrines and teachings that have their origin in the mind of your pastor or you or in your, your heart and your ideas, you're not teaching the truth regarding God. Um, in fact, you're breaking the commandments, uh, you know, number one, to have no other gods before you, and you're also teaching the commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In fact, oftentimes... Um, Christians, when you know, if you were to ask them, what does it mean when the Bible says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain? The only thing, and, and this is where it gets uh, to be a problem, the only thing that comes to their mind is that uh, you know, taking God's name in vain is when you when you pull out your smartphone and you text the letters OMG. You see, that's that's taking God's name in vain. Now, yes, that is taking God's name in vain. But that commandment is so much more than just that. Taking God's name in vain is when you basically hijack the name of the one true God. And, you know, you think of it this way. Um, you know, you can almost, 
this is a bad metaphor, but work with me here. It, it has some limits. But uh, you know, f- corporations have different logos, right? You know, and I, off the top of my head, you, you think of McDonald's or uh, American Airlines or Southwest Airlines, or you know, or, or even Apple. You know, Apple Computer. They they all have their logos, right? And uh, the idea then is is that you know, think of it this way: God's name is in this it, it, a metaphor like a logo. So what somebody does when they take God's name in vain, they take something that really has God's name to it and they snip it out and they've got God's name and then they slap it on an inferior product. So this would be like uh, me going downstairs into the kitchen and uh, making a, my own version of a hamburger and then my daughter asking me, well, what are you making, Dad? And I said, well, this, uh, my, my dearest child, is a Big Mac. And, and she says, no, that's not a Big Mac, Dad. You, you made that. McDonald's didn't make that. And I whip out a McDonald's Big Mac sandwich box. You know, you know how they, if you go to McDonald's, you order a Big Mac and they put it in a box for you. And so I said, no, look, this is a Big Mac. And then I stick it into the box and I say, see? It's got the McDonald's logo on it. And my daughter then would look at me and give me strange, uh, you know, she, she, she might even hit me. Um, but you get the point that I'm saying. So taking God's name in vain is you coming up with an inferior product that you then ascribe to God, an inferior doctrine that is innovative to you or to your particular pastor or your culture or your church, and then slapping God's name on it in order to create the impression that what you're saying, teaching, confessing, is, well, it's got God's stamp of approval because it's done in God's name. So that's the more important aspect of you shall not take God's name in vain, which then, if you rightly understand it, then you understand that taking God's name in vain primarily does not take place on somebody's smartphone. Taking God's name in vain primarily happens in pulpits, at churches, in Christian books. That's where God's name is taken in vain the most, and and is in it's done in a way that causes the utmost damage, damage to people's souls, to their faith. Um, I mean, shipwrecking the faith of many and sending them off and believing that what they're believing is Christianity or Christian doctrine when it is not. So um, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is, well, you can think of this as like um, brand control or uh, quality control for products that are claiming to be Christian doctrine. We test to see whether or not um, if they really are teaching Christian doctrine, if what's being taught by people truly can be said to uh, be worthy of the brand name of the one true God. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. And unfortunately, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse out there. And so much so that, um, you know, well, it's like I said at the beginning of the program, I'm having a hard time keeping up. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is a normal episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yay, normal episode. Um, we're going to start off with a quick news story, and uh, this uh, you know, this comes to us via the Pyromaniacs blog. And uh, the question that uh, that I'm asking that actually was asked by uh, Dan Phillips over there at the Pyromaniacs blog is, why is Chuck Swindoll 
um, hosting Phillips, Craig, and Dean at his church. And uh, you're thinking, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, uh, who are they and why shouldn't Chuck Swindoll be hosting them? Well, the reason why um, Chuck Swindoll should not be hosting uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean at his church is because Phillips, Craig, and Dean do not believe in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Um, let's just say that, that they are in the same kind of camp as uh, T.D. Jakes. And um, why would somebody who is so prominently affiliated with like Dallas Theological Seminary and the evangelical movement be hosting a, a, a so-called Christian singing group or band um, that doesn't actually believe and hold to the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. So we'll take a look at that. Um, then we'll take a quick break. we got a couple of uh, extended segments that I want to do here. Um, Jim Wallace of uh, Sojourners, um, he has weighed in and has given his commentary on the um, uh, the History Channel miniseries, uh, The Bible, which we refer to here at Fighting for the Faith as The Bobble, because whoever wrote this thing totally bobbled it. Um, so uh, we're going to be taking a look at Jim Wallace's commentary. Um, in fact, we might do segment one today and then have some future segments today. Um, I'll be reading from his blog regarding the story of Peter and Jesus fishing and how Jesus said to Peter that we're going to go change the world. And uh, so what I find interesting with Jim Wallace's commentary is that he reveals to us uh, in no uncertain terms why he thinks that this message of change the world is a really good one. And after you hear why he thinks it's a really good message, you'll realize just how bad of a message it is and how it's not the biblical gospel. Then we'll switch gears and we're going to uh, take a listen to some of the statements made by Rob Bell over the weekend, uh, the big news is that he's uh, come out openly affirming gay marriage. And I don't really consider that to be a big news headline because as we covered last last year at Fighting for the Faith, at the Viper Room in Hollywood, um, Rob Bell already had affirmed gay marriage you know, back then. But this was done in a more high-profile venue and in conjunction with his book tour uh, for his latest book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. And I want you to hear some of the statements he made, not just, con- not re- just referring to gay marriage, but some of the comments that he's made regarding um, – the future of evangelicalism, which I found to be rather fascinating. And then what we'll do, we'll switch gears after the second break, and we're going to be going to Joplin, Missouri to Ignite Church and listen to a Heath Mooneyhan uh, sermon entitled, What's Your Point? <laughs> yeah, that's the name of the sermon. <clears throat> With a name of a sermon like that, I may be uh, asking that question myself several times throughout the uh, was throughout said sermon. So I strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground to cover today. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And here we go. From the Pyromaniacs blog, the headline reads, A2 Chuck Swindoll hosts singing elephants. What? (laughs) This is written by Dan Phillips. So Dan Phillips writes, he says, uh, before James McDonald's uh, disastrous and still unaddressed decision to host T.D. Jakes as a Christian leader, I didn't know Mac D from Adam, so I wasn't as shocked as others who had known and previously thought well of him simply because I had no baseline. And now here we are yet again with a different but similar situation. It's different in that I do know Chuck Swindoll, well, 
Not personally, though I did sit next to him in Talbot Chapel once, but I've heard Swindoll read, uh, read him, enjoyed him uh, in, in a lot in years past, and he's earned a good reputation in many ways, at least as being sound and stable on the fundamentals, and he has been the remains, he has been and remains associated with Dallas Theological Seminary, which itself at least soundly affirms basic biblical doctrines. So why ever would Swindoll's church host singers who are, to say it charitably as, po- as charitably as possible, unclear on the core doctrine of the Trinity? My attention was first drawn to this by Mark Lamprecht, whose open, pe- open letter to Chuck Swindoll and Stonebriar Church on Phillips, Craigs, and, and Dean does a fantastic job documenting the concerns any Christian should instantly have on hearing this absolutely baffling news. At, le- at last, notice Mark has received no response. Look, neither of these matters is new. I refer first to the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. This isn't a doctrine that's been recently detected in the text of Scripture. Christians have not only recently turned their attention to studying what Scripture says about the nature of God, the truth of the Trinity of persons in in the one true God has been seen and expounded with increasing clarity from the very earliest days of the church. To my mind, Scripture is absolutely crystal clear and emphatic in its revelation of the triune God, and God, who one as to essence has eternally existed in three persons, it isn't a newly identified subject or a newly expounded truth, and it isn't that the heresy of modalism raised new and baffling questions last Tuesday, questions which haven't been answered finally, uh, finally, thunderously and decisively since the first time they were posed many centuries ago, and it isn't as if those answers are little known or difficult to obtain, or as if the issue is not vital and foundational, and it isn't as if it is... It's impossibly difficult, A, to express the basic truths of the doctrine, or B, to sniff and C, ferret out when false teachers are squiggling or fudging or dodging those truths. Second, I refer to a serious and, as far as I know, utterly unanswered concern expressed about Phillips, Craig, and Dean's view of God, which are long-standing, easily located, and all over the place. James White has spoken up. Eric Nielsen has lengthy treatments at White's site. Neither of these is recent nor difficult to find. The Wikipedia quotations are typical of PCDs, that's Philip Craig's and Dean's responses, and can serve as representative of all the others I've seen while they might work for the top men who gave T.D. Jakes a thumbs up, and in Brian Loritz's case, as much as as said that only racist middle-aged white guys weren't satisfied, these pathetic dodges wouldn't work for most biblically and theologically prepared Christians. So all of that said, here I am again, one, what possible excuse or explanation can there be for Chuck Swindoll to promote anyone who isn't crystal clear on the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and two, if anyone wants to say they've changed, then I refer you right back to this and this, and he's got links that you can go to. So that is, I asked how a man can be held up as a Christian leader in any sense when he is not crystal clear on such fundamentals as the gospel and the nature of God. And so I now am asking again, how can singers lead in worship if they are in any way unclear as to their understanding of the nature of God and the gospel. Hello, what does worship mean? 
does it matter what God we're worshiping, whether we are worshiping the same God as the worship leaders? Does it matter what we are conceiving of as the basis of that relationship that underlies our worship? Chuck Swindoll has always identified himself with the school of thought that affirms what should be obvious, that these things matter. And now this. What possible sense does this make? Now, I'm going to pause right there. You know, I don't need to read the rest of the article, but you get the gist of what's going on here. So Phillips, Craig, and Dean are going to Chuck Swindoll's church, and they're leading people in worship there during, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, an event, concert, or whatever. But Dan asked the right question. He asked the right question, and that's this. How can we be said to be worshiping the same God as the worship leaders if they don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Answer, we're not worshiping the same God. Modalism was was refuted as a heresy, number one, because it, it's, it teaches contrary to God's word. It doesn't say the same thing about the nature of God as what Scripture reveals. But also the, 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 the result of that is that the deity that they believe in is not the one true God. The deity they believe in is an idol, okay, I-D-O-L. It's not a real deity. Therefore, um, modalists historically have always been rejected as heretics and idolaters who believe in a different God than the one who's revealed in Scripture. And so why would Chuck Swindoll, who has you know for years been considered somebody who basically thinks that the doctrine of the Trinity matters, be winking at and not doing anything regarding um, the fact that uh, non-Trinitarians are going to be singing at his church? Doesn't make any sense. But the one thing I've learned since nearly being arrested at Elephant Room 2 for trespassing, of course, even though I purchased a, you know, an admission uh, a ticket to go in there, um, I was threatened with arrest. <laughs> I'm not welcome there. But um, the point is, is that since that time, I've noticed that the doctrine of the Trinity by many evangelicals is not considered to be a cardinal doctrine. One that we should divide over anymore. In fact, we should just... Uh, doesn't matter what anybody believes regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, it does. It just doesn't matter. It's not worth dividing over. And like I pointed out yesterday, I think it's significant to note that the History Channel miniseries, The Bobble, um, at the baptism of Jesus, omitted, omit the, the the Trinity did not appear at the at the baptism of Jesus in the History Channel miniseries, The Bobble. In fact. Um, Jesus was baptized, but there was no voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was no Holy Spirit descending like a dove and uh, landing on Jesus. Not at all. So the doctrine of the Trinity, hey, yeah, you know, you old school fundamentalists out there, all that matters is that people love God, right? Right. Why are you being so divisive? We need to unite, and the doctrine of the Trinity is keeping us all from uniting. I think that's how the argument goes. But um, the reality is, is that we do not have unity with people who call themselves Christians who worship a different God. 
All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We'll be right back, and we've got a Jim Wallace uh, update regarding his commentary on the bobble and uh, also an update on Rob Bell. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay... Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. (laughs) Sir, I believe you're a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend 
Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, those who don't pay attention to the details of sound doctrine, God's word, and just say it doesn't matter, they're not acting in accord with what God's word says. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 moving along time for a quick update on the bobble that would be the history channel miniseries also known as the bible but it's not the bible so we refer to it as the bobble and, well, this song represents the main theme of the bobble. If I can reach the stars Pull one down for you Shining on my heart So you can see the truth And this love I have inside Everything it seems, but for now I find it's only in my 
right, that's Eric Clapton's Change the World. Okay, now from the Jim Wallace Sojourners um, blog. Um, yeah, you can find this at God Politic. Actually, it's uh, sojo.net. You, you just look up Jim Wallace, find his blog. He's got a, a blog entitled God's Politics. And um, not surprising, uh, Jim Wallace, <clears throat> the well-known liberal, is well. He likes the uh, the the miniseries, the Bobble. In fact, Jim Wallace writes. He says the Bible, that would be the Bobble, just uh, just the phrase sends messages, signals, and feelings to our hearts and minds around the world. It's the best-selling book in human history, and the one that the majority of humanity, including me, believes to have been inspired by God with myriad interpretations of what that means. I grew up on Bible stories, some of the, uh, the best stories in human and divine history. We learned them as kids, were amazed at the images and lessons, and they were ingrained into our thinking and acting. So I watched with great delight as my sons, Luke and Jack, saw the first episode of The Bobble, a History Channel uh, special series that began this past Sunday and runs the five weeks through Easter. Film and television personalities Mark Burnett and Roma Downey are behind this with a legion of others. They expect it to eventually be seen by one billion people. Now, real quick here, a little uh, side. I'm going to take a a sojourn, if you would, to uh, on a bunny trail. Uh, from the Beck slash Smith Hollywood dot com website. You can find this at Beck Smith Hollywood dot com. The headline reads Roma Downey happy out of spotlight. OK, now, in case you're wondering what Roma Downey believes, I think that there is a very important little, um, well, factoid in this particular story that I think you will find rather interesting, okay? So it's talking about how Roma Downey's happy about being out of the spotlight and things like that, although she's currently in the spotlight. And uh, here's what the, what this, <clears throat> this uh, uh, blog post says. It says, Sadly, all too many famous folk don't make the adjustment to living lower-profile lives as easily as that. She agrees. We've, been, uh, we've seen it. You've written about it. The spotlight moves on, and in the absence of light, they don't exist. If you haven't figured out your sources within yourself, it's a recipe for unhappiness. Roma also attends the University of Santa Monica, a private graduate school founded by New Age spiritual and self-help guru John Roger and will graduate with a master's degree in spiritual psychology in June. Did you know that? Did you know that Roma Downey attends the University of Santa Monica, a private graduate school founded by New Age spiritual and self-help guru John Roger, and that she will have a master's degree in spiritual psychology in June? I didn't know that until somebody pointed this out to me. Anyway, so uh, let me go back to the uh, Jim Wallace piece, though. Okay, so Roma and her husband are hoping that a billion people uh, will eventually see their miniseries, The Bible. So um, Jim Wallace continues, says, The first Sunday show was a very dramatic depiction of the creation story, Noah's Ark, Abraham's call to come out to a new land, uh, the birth of Ishmael and Isaac, and the the almost sacrifice of Isaac, Hebrew slavery in Egypt, Moses' call to the burning bush in Exodus through the Red Sea— 
all in two hours. I love watching my nine-year-old Jack watch the stories with such excitement. I know the story he would say and tell us what was about to happen. I don't know this one. And he would then comment and we would discuss it. We had a conversation about the scary sacrifice of Isaac before bedtime, trying to figure out, uh, figure that one out. It, I told him I couldn't have been as obedient as Abraham was. The producers, Mark and Roma, asked me, Mm-hmm. That's right. Jim Wallace said that Mark and Roma asked Jim Wallace and a number of other theologians and pastors to view some of the clips ahead of time and do commentaries on them uh, on them for the Bible or the Bobble website. I am including the clips I commented on at the end of this column. What won me over to the whole series was the clip about Jesus meeting Peter, the fisherman. Listen to this. In my favorite clip of the series, Jesus sees Peter out on the Sea of Galilee and boldly walks out into the water to Peter's fishing boat. The incredulous young fisherman asks this guy what he is doing. Jesus responds by asking Peter to help him into his boat and then tells him to cast his net into the sea again to catch some fish. Peter cynically says, there are no fish today, but Jesus persists. Something about Jesus makes Peter decide to throw his net back into the water. And you know the story. The net is filled with fish over and again, over and over again. Astonished now, Peter asks Jesus how this happened. Jesus doesn't really answer the question, but instead gives his famous invitation to Peter, come with me and I will make you a fisher of men. What are we going to do, Peter asks Jesus, which is a wonderful question, and I love the answer Jesus gives, which is in all the promotions of the Bible, the series, change the world. That's the answer that Jesus gives. We're going to change the world. <clears throat> now comes his explanation as to why he likes that response. That's why that's what we're going to do. We're going to change the world, not just to save a few people from hell and get them to heaven, not to judge all the non-Christians, not to abandon the earth for mansions in the hereafter, not to make sure that we all believe the right doctrinal things. No. Jesus came to change the world and us with it. To join him is to join the changing of the world with the inbreaking of a new order called the kingdom of God. Yeah. So Jim Wallace loves the message of change the world specifically because he says that's not a message about saving a few people from hell and getting them to heaven. It's not a message about judging all the non-Christians. It's not about abandoning the earth for mansions in the year after. It's not, it, it, not to make sure that we all believe the right doctrinal things. It's to change the world. So there you have it. Jim Wallace explains why he likes that message. And the fact that Jim Wallace likes that message, and for the reasons that he likes it, should trouble you all the more regarding the false theology that's being put forward in the bubble. Moving along. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. That's right, it's time for a Rob Bell update. Yellow 
I have no idea what those lyrics mean, but that's the reason why I picked it for uh, Rob Bell updates. Okay, so over the weekend, uh, Rob Bell uh, appeared at what, the, what was the name of that uh, cathedral? Uh, he appeared at a cathedral in San Francisco and was asked questions by an Episcopalian pastrix regarding the future of uh, evangelicalism, his views on uh, gay marriage and things of the sort. And before we get to his views on evangelicalism and gay marriage, I want to first play for you part of what he said there because I want to circle back to it when we get to his comments regarding evangelicalism. So here's Rob Bell Talking about, of all things, what's called epistemology. Epistemology is that study of how you know what you know. Here's Rob Bell. Um, and you talk about the ways in which, and he is going to sign books which are for sale at the end, um, uh, but you talk about the ways in which we really don't know very much about the world. So there's a kind of arrogance if we think we do. Okay, now, so the question is, this is relating to his book, what we talk about when we talk about God. And he talks about those people, because of modernist ideas, there's a lot of arrogance regarding how the world works and things like that. This is an important little factoid that I want to come back to because it plays into the things that he says later. But listen to his answer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, in the book, I talk a bit about quantum physics, and they've discovered that these subatomic particles appear in one place, then they disappear and they appear in another place without traveling the distance in between. Then they discovered, well, actually what a subatomic particle does is it doesn't just disappear in this place and appear in this place without traveling the distance in between. Subatomic particles travel every possible route they could from point A to point B, and they only reveal which route they actually took when they're observed. So at the subatomic realm... Like Niels Bohr, a friend of Einstein's, just said, if you study quantum physics and you're not outraged, then you're not studying quantum physics. And that all of the remains of our earliest ancestors, Lucy, etc., all of the bones of our earliest ancestors we've discovered can fit in the back of a pickup. So everything we know about earliest, earliest, earliest human, human life in terms of actual featherless bipeds. Um, so it's just fascinating. We, we essentially aren't the masters that we were taught that we are. Um, right. And, and, I mean, interestingly, obviously there's a way in which the Enlightenment is, opposed, is often regarded as sort of opposed to religion and, and, the, and the beginnings of a kind of pattern of secularization. But nevertheless, it's my own belief, and I think probably yours from reading this book, that we've ingrained patterns of Enlightenment thinking, which is to uh, look for certainty in certain things. Yeah. And in fact, the point of faith is it's about faith and therefore about doubt. As It's not about certainty. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now... I just put that down as kind of a marker in your brain, okay? So here they're talking – this is kind of standard postmodern fare, if you wouldn't, talking about epistemology that, you know, those modernists, oh, yeah, they were they had so much arrogance and conceitedness and they, they really engaged in believing in certainty and things like that. And so he is, along with this gal here, deconstructing some of these assumptions regarding modernity um, based upon the fact that, well, the world isn't as cut and dry and we don't really know as much as we think we know about the world. And so there's got to be a lot of room for doubt, okay, because faith is about doubt and that certainty is a bad thing, okay? Now, I point this out for the reason that what you're, we're going to hear next from Rob Bell 
is what I would consider a lot of certainty on his part. He's very certain that the things that he is saying are true, that this is absolutely the truth. He's very certain about that. And yet I would point out to Rob Bell that he hasn't actually met God. Nope, neither have I, uh, and probably uh, you haven't either, unless, of course, you've traveled to heaven with Patricia King uh, or Cat Kerr or somebody like that. Um, so you're, um, you, haven't, you, you haven't met God. And so we got to be really careful about what we express regarding God with certainty. And what I mean by that is that if we're going to say God is like this or God wills this or God wants you to do this or not do that or God wants you to believe this or not that, then we had better have a sure and certain foundation for those statements and be appealing to something that we can hang on to objectively as being true, or we're kind of left like the quantum physicists scratching our head and left kind of in a conundrum regarding certainty and what how we thought we understood how the universe operates. So what I'm basically arguing here is, is that his little deconstructing technique actually cuts both ways. So here is Rob Bell and his interviewer discussing the future of the evangelical church. He's going to give his definition of the gospel, by the way, in this this next segment, as well as his uh, statements regarding gay marriage, which I think are rather fascinating. But we continue. Here's uh, uh, we continue. What you think the future of the evangelical church is? I mean, by which I mean a particular kind of evangelical church, because you and I might call it call ourselves and each other evangelical, but I think I mean the evangelical churches with a capital E. What do you think their future is in this country? Or in general? Sorry, we talked Which, about this before. This is not a surprise question. No, no, no. I mean, I mean um, well, I, I think that you're, I think we are witnessing the death of a particular subculture that doesn't work. Yes. I think there is a very narrow a narrow, politically intertwined, mm. culturally ghettoized evangelical subculture that was told we're going to change the thing, and they haven't. Um, and they actually have turned away lots of people. Mm. And I think when you are in a part of a subculture that is dying, you you make a lot more noise right. because that pain... Um, it's very painful. So um, you sort of die or you adapt. Mm. And if you adapt, it means you have to come face to face with some of the ways we've talked about God. Don't actually shape people into more loving, compassionate people. And yeah. we have supported policies and ways of viewing the world that are actually destructive. And right. we've done it in the name of God and we need to repent. Right. Okay, so here's Rob Bell talking about the need for repentance in evangelicalism. Which I find to be rather odd, okay? Because if he's saying that evangelicalism needs to repent, then he's appealing to some standard and he's confident and certain that that standard is true. But what is his standard? Um, the reason I ask these questions is because he rejects and deconstructs so much of Scripture that we can't say that Rob Bell has as his authority the clear, certain, unambiguous word of God, he's got a different standard. 
And my question is, why should I believe that standard? How is it superior to the clear, unambiguous written word of God? Now, I'm going to continue because you can kind of see epistemologically, he's a flat-out hypocrite. We continue. That's just what I think. Yeah. So I think in some senses you are witnessing, um, that's what you are, you are witnessing. You would not believe the people, uh, the, the Love Wins book, who will, who will say, hey, um, I'm the leader of such and such evangelical Christian organization, and I love the book, but I cannot publicly mention your name or I'll lose my job. So that's when you know. And that's probably because Christians, for the most part, understand that what Rob Bell teaches in there is flat-out heresy that denies the clear teaching of the Word of God. You know something's falling apart is when yeah. people actually believe something, but they cling to their paycheck. Right. But I think you'll see. But then what you're also seeing is all sorts of fresh, new, innovative mm. um, work being done and things sprouting up all over the place. Fresh, new, innovative work. Why should I believe that fresh, new, innovative work being done is actually true, sound, theology, or doctrine pertaining to God? I mean, have these people met with God? Have they walked with Jesus? Did they witness his crucifixion and resurrection? Who are these people who are coming up with these fresh, innovative ideas? In fact, uh, I mean... I, I'm fairly certain here that uh, I need to doubt what these people are saying and doing because I can't trust the, the source for their ideas because it's them, not God's word. Um, that's just amazing signs of life. So I think you'll see a massive shifting. And yeah. hopefully my goal or my... What, to me, what would be beautiful is if the word evangelical, which, by the way, was a Roman military announcement that they had conquered one more land and subjugated one more nation state. And these first Christians took this global military superpower propaganda and they co-opted it for their own purposes. And they said, we have good news. Our good news is the world is not made better through coercive military violence like the Roman Empire. Our good news is the world is made better through sacrificial love. Okay, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to back this up. I want you to hear this definition. This is Rob Bell giving his definition of the gospel. And my question is, why should I believe Rob Bell's definition here um, if I can't find it in the clear teaching of the Word of God? Listen again. These first Christians took this global military superpower propaganda and they co-opted it for their own purposes. And they said, we have good news. Our okay, so this is the ancient church saying, we have good news. Listen. And they said, we have good news. Our good news is the world is not made better through coercive military violence like the Roman Empire. Our good news is the world is made better through sacrificial love. Hmm. Where in the apostolic record, in which you're going to have to go to the New Testament to find, where in the apostolic record does it does it say that the good news that Christians have to offer the world is that the world is not made better through coercion and military whatever, but through sacrificial love? Answer, it, this, this good news nowhere appears in Scripture. Let me play it again. Listen again to this definition. And they said, we have good news. Our good news is the world is not made better through coercive military violence like the Roman Empire. Our good news is the world is made better through sacrificial love. Which Christian said that? Was it Peter? 
uh, James, the Apostle Paul? Um, was it Mark, Luke? Who, which of the apostles said this? Which of the New Testament writers said that this is the definition of the gospel? Answer, not one of them. So my question is, what's his source for this statement? And why should I believe it? When I have in the writings of the apostles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which was written by an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he defines the gospel. See if this definition squares with the definition that Rob Bell gave. Here's the definition. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received. So he's going he's gonna to remind the church at Corinth of the gospel that he preached. Okay, so he, and this is the Greek word, euangelion, okay, which means good news. This is where we get the word ev- evangelical from. It's based upon that. So he says, I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So the gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, and by the way, this is an ancient Christian creed that's embedded here in this passage of scripture. The gospel is the announcement that Christ died for our sins and was raised again bodily from the grave on the third day. That's the gospel. I don't see anything here in this definition given in the apostolic record of the gospel being defined as, hey, we have good news that the world is not made better and people are not made more loving through military coercion and power and things of that nature. In fact, listen again to Rob Bell's definition. And they said, we have good news. Our good news is the world is not made better through coercive military violence like the Roman Empire. Our good news is the world is made better through sacrificial love. Why should I believe this definition? The source for this definition is clearly not the apostolic record, the inspired word of God, but, well, Rob Bell or some weird liberal uh, theologian out there. Why should I believe this? In fact, I, I'm convinced that Rob Bell needs to stop being so arrogant and believing that he really understands how, how God operates, what he's like, or what the gospel is, because um, he's so arrogant that he's got this all figured out that he's not even going to the primary source for defining and telling us what the gospel is, and that would be the written word of God. We continue. So actually, when evangelical becomes associated with global military superpower and coercive military tactics, it's the exact opposite of the origins of the word. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, again, what's your source for this? It's not the Bible. Uh, which right. were these people who had a, believed in a different way and would say to each other, hey, we don't think Caesar is Lord. We think Jesus is Lord. Are you with me now? Well, we might start preaching here. So uh, I actually, the beautiful thing would be if evangelical came to mean buoyant, joyful, honest, 
announcement about all of us receiving the grace of God and then together giving back to make the world the kind of place God always dreamed it could be. What? Where are you getting this definition from? Listen again, what he wants, he hopes evangelical will come to be defined as. Buoyant, joyful, honest announcement about all of us receiving the grace of God and then together giving back to make the world the kind of place God always dreamed it could be. Dream the, the kind of place God always dreamed it could be. Change the world kind of talk. And so I don't toss the word out. I'm, let's, I'll, let's reclaim it. All of us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right on. Um, and what do, you, what do you think the future of the church is? is? We talked a little bit about this too. I, and I the, think we will always, as human beings, long to gather in a room and talk about the things that matter most and right. then take the bread and the wine and be reminded of the holiness of all of life. So I think there are, there are basic human longings that have always been there. And... I think there will always be churches. The question is what kind of churches. And I think you'll endlessly be seeing people reclaiming things that were lost along the way that need to be reclaimed and things that we've picked up along the way that we thought were central to the message but aren't yeah. that need to be left behind. I think um, – but I'm very hopeful. Well, well, listen to this again. Hang on. Reclaiming things that were lost along the way that need to be reclaimed and things that we've picked up along the way that we thought were central to the message but aren't yeah. that need to be left Behind, I think. So, how would we decide what things should be left behind in our messages? Would we be going to the written word of God, and then those things that don't square with God's word, would those be the things that we abandon and get rid of? Um, but I'm very hopeful. Yes. Good. Excellent. Um, let, let me bring you to a particular issue that is, of course, one of the hot issues of the day, which is a question from someone in the audience. The public position of support among prominent conservatives for same-sex marriage, marriage equality, has moved rapidly in the past year. Can you say where you are on this issue? Yes, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. Okay. Okay, now let me see if you can – I'm going to back this up. Can you identify the important word there? Listen again. Yes, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. Okay. Okay, the, the important word was that, that was there was I. I am for. I am for. I am for. As a Christian, um, this issue, I can't answer it. Only God can. And I dare not, as a Christian teacher, give an answer different than what God's Word says on this. Because God's Word says that this is a sin, I cannot therefore say that I'm in favor of it and call myself a Christian pastor, leader, or whatever. Now, Rob Bell here is basically arguing not from what Scripture says, but from what he says. Yes, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love. Whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. Okay. And now, why should I believe Rob Bell is an authority and can therefore decide what the church's doctrine should be regarding this issue? I mean, I, I don't think he has the qualifications. Last time I checked, he did not die on a cross and then rise again bodily from the grave. So his credentials are far, far inferior to the credentials of Jesus Christ. And I think the ship has sailed, and I think that the church needs 
to just this is the world that we are living in and we need to affirm people wherever they are. Uh-huh. Okay, let me back that up. Listen again. A man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. Okay. And I think the ship has sailed and I think that the church needs to just this is the world that we are living in and we need to affirm people wherever they are. Why should we affirm people wherever they are? Why should I believe that God wants me to affirm people wherever they are? Where where can I go to know with any kind of certainty that God wants me to affirm people where they're at? Is it just because Rob Bell says so? Is it because the cultural ship has sailed that I should just assume that God wants me to just hop on the ship and and celebrate and affirm everybody where they're at? I mean, why should I believe this? I mean, does Rob Bell really think that he's got this all figured out? I mean, I mean, if quantum physicists can't seem to figure out, you know, how the quantum physics things work, and that's, you know, an important part of his epistemology, why is he so certain on this? Um, where is he going to get his certainty from? He's not, he, see, he's very doubtful regarding, well, you know, the doctrine of hell. He's very doubtful um, that the Bible condemns homosexual lust and homosexual behavior as sinful, but he's flat out certain that the ship has sailed and the church needs to hop on the uh, affirm the gay marriage bandwagon. Why is he so sure about that? On what basis is he so sure? Should I, as a Christian, be looking at the same things that he's looking at and say, oh yeah, that means that God wants me to believe this, that, and the other thing? And how can I be sure about that? You see, when it comes to Rob Bell's epistemology, he is doubtful of the things that he should be certain of, and he's certain of the things that he should not be certain of. In fact, the very things that he should be doubting are the very things that he's affirming with certainty and the very things that he's affirming with certain. Well, you got what I'm saying. It's kind of confusing. But again, the question is, always comes back to what's your source and by what authority are you saying these things? It's clear that Rob Bell is his own authority. Rob Bell, in his own mind, believes that he has the same credentials, well, as Jesus Christ. And I, for one, would say he doesn't. What do you think? Okay, we are up on our second break. Quick, pay some bills. We come back, sermon review time. We'll be heading to Joplin, Missouri. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon <clears throat> comes to us via Ignite Church, Joplin, Missouri. Heath Mooneyhan um, presiding. The name of said sermon is entitled, What's Your Point? What's Your Point? Apparently, this is a teaching based somewhat on uh, Genesis chapter 15. But we're going to have to open our Bibles to see if that's actually the case. If the point that he is making is the same point that, well, Genesis 15 is making. The only way we can determine what that point is is, well, you know, by opening our Bibles. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Heath Mooneyhan and his sermon entitled, What's Your Point? Here we go. Today's just one of those days that's kind of been messing with me. I just had an unsettling going on. It started about yesterday. And so this is one of those days that play that I just wreak havoc on our tech department and stuff. And so 
I, uh, I, I called or I, I text one of our tech guys this morning. I said, uh, hey, just, just be ready. I don't know if I'm even going to preach that sermon this morning. And so uh, he's like, well, you know, freaks out or whatever. And I said, oh, don't worry. Just, just go with the flow. And so we're just going to be going with the flow this morning because I did have a, an awesome, there, I got another message. I don't know. We might save it for later. Uh, it's called Grab Some Jars. And it was going to be talking about the uh, the widow and her oil that Elisha uh, told her to go grab some jars. And it's just incredible principles that we could pull out of that. But I don't know. I feel like God's taking us in a different direction. So I hope you guys are ready for church this morning. You love church at all? I love church. I love church. That feels good. I love church. And uh, so today I hope you, we're, you're open to what God has to say to all of us. And I just, you know, grab a pen. There should be pens underneath your seats and grab a piece of paper right on your neighbor's arm or something. Because there's going to be good stuff. And listen, here's the deal. Like, don't just let these words be words. And, you know, you're like, ah, it flies in one ear and out the other. Write some stuff down. Apply this stuff to your life. Let God change you. Do something. If you really want the greater things that God has for you, because everybody does. Listen, I, I don't know who you would have to be sitting out there and saying, I don't want, a, I, don't, I just don't want a greater life. You know, some of you, you, you got that look on your face, though, honestly. It looks like you've been sucking on vinegar all morning or something. You know, just, yeah, that's why I ask, are, are you happy? Are you glad to be in church? Are you glad to be in God's house? Because this is my favorite day of the week. I get so excited to see the lives that are changed in this place week after week. I get excited. I was, I was just pumped earlier. Uh, just down there worshiping with my wife. And that's like my favorite time. Like just get to worship God. And so I pray that as a church that nobody would ever out worship us. We should go after God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our might and all of our strength. Amen. Amen. I think, uh, I don't know. That's pretty good preaching. I could probably just stop. Anyways, I there's this old story, and I, you know, it really started because I watched this uh, series on TV, this um, that that Bible series, and I thought, man, that's, that's pretty cool. They don't tell much of the, I mean, they tell the big idea of the story, but the Old Testament, what they're in right now, is just so rich, so full of stories, man. And, and man, like I remember when it like it broke my uh, heart, I was almost in tears, like emotionally. Um, whenever uh, Abraham was going to go up and, and sacrifice his son for God. I was like, oh, man, that was just gut-wrenching. But what I thought of was all of the years that led up to that, that promise that God had given him, and now he was calling him to sacrifice it. And if you, if you don't know the Bible, he didn't end up killing his son. So that's a good thing, all right? So don't just walk out of here screaming. Ah. So that, that didn't happen. But I thought about all this time um, that that. The time before all that, whenever God had called Abraham, and man, he had an incredible journey. Um, we're going to pick up the story today in Genesis chapter 15. We're just going to read six verses here, and then I'm going to pull something out of Psalms real quick. And uh, we're just going to talk about this. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1, says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram. See, before he's Abraham, he's just Abram. He's just Abram. The Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? What good is it that you even blessed me? 
Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own, and who will be your heir? Then the Lord took Abram outside, and he said to him, Look up into the sky and count all the stars. If you can, that was like God's being cocky to him. Could you imagine being out in the, in the desert sky out there with, I mean, we don't have pollution, nothing going on back there. Just the, just the, just the desert air, the smell of camel dung (laughs) and stars numbering in the millions. Just too many to count. He says, count them if you can. That's how many descendants that you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Skip over to Psalms 147, verse 4. I just love this right here. Talking about God, he says he counts the stars, and he calls them all by name. God God sees all the stars. He counts all the stars, and he calls all the stars by name. So I I guess with reading that... Okay, got to pause here. Now... Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6 is a great passage, a fantastic passage, which has as its cross-reference, not necessarily Psalm 147 uh, verse 4 that talks about how uh, all the stars have names, um, but it actually has a direct cross-reference in uh, Romans chapter 4. So let let me read from Genesis uh, chapter uh, 15 verses 5 and 6 again. Here's what it says. And he, God, brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when it says that God credited to Abraham his belief as righteousness? Well, Romans chapter 4 gives us the answer. Here's what it says. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, that means to be declared righteous, by works, that would be works of the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Now, this is important. How how is your standing before God determined? Is it do you merit God God's love and blessing and favor and forgiveness by your good works and your law keeping? No, not at all. In fact, if the basis for your justification were your law, were, was your law keeping and your ability to do good works, well, you would stand condemned because every sin that you commit, well, that, that sin earns you hell. So how then are we declared righteous before God? Is it by our works? No, it's not. Here, it says that our 
right standing before God is determined by faith. Faith in God, faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Our right standing before God is is purely, purely gift and it's and it's based on faith and even Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 make it clear that that faith to believe God and the promises of God, um, that faith itself is given to us as a gift, okay? So this passage, Genesis chapter 15, specifically verse 6, that Abraham believed God or Abram believed God and God credited to him as righteousness, you can say imputed, it's another valid uh, word there, is then picked up in this theme here. Let me read it, uh, go back a couple of verses, Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, the one who, you know, his wages are not counted as a gift. No, 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 they're counted as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, is this blessing then also only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted or credited to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised for the promise to Abraham that his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if the adherents of the law uh, who are uh, if if it is the adherence adherence of the law who are the ones who are heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he, Abram, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, and he had and he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own uh, body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteous." But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for our sake alone, but also, or for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this passage from Genesis 15, great passage, okay? And this touches on the very heart of our salvation, that we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, God reckons our trust and faith in him as righteousness the same way in which he reckoned uh, Abraham's righteousness or faith in him as righteousness. This is what this is all about. So this touches on the very heart of the gospel. But let's see if Heath Mooneyhan understands that. The proof will be in the pudding as he begins to explain to us now this passage that he's read from Genesis chapter uh, 15, verses 1 through 6. The question here would be, uh, so what's your point in all this? Do you ever... You ever feel like that? You, you, have you ever been asked that question or do you, have you ever asked that question to somebody else? You ever just uh, be in conversation with somebody and you guys are going back and forth and man, this person just, just rambles on and on and on. And, and have you ever sat in church sometimes and just go, what's your point? What's your point? So that's the message uh, today that I wanted to say. What's your, your point? Uh, whenever I was little, little like being, I don't know, Let's see, from the time I can really remember, I can't really remember life until about, I don't know, four years old, maybe, is some of my first memories. And uh, from, the, from the time I was little till, I don't know, I was probably 12 or so, um, I thought that everybody in life was raised exactly like me. Let me unpack that here. I didn't know any different. Uh-huh. What does this have to do with the righteousness that comes by faith? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does this have to do with that? I didn't know any different in my life. So here's basically uh, my life whenever I was growing up. I, uh, uh, we had a real small home. Um, it was around 800, 900 square feet. Um, it was just... It was just small. It was nothing special. It was pretty run down, whatever. Um, just typical life. We'd run around the yard, and, and uh, I mean, we'd use our imagination. Sticks were our toys. Um, we would adopt, like, neighbor's pets. And I thought it was great having a neighbor's pet as your own pet because the neighbor fed them and took care of them. You just had to play with them. And so we'd, we'd borrow neighbor, neighbor's pets and they'd be our pets. And then, and then whenever I was little, I remember that house burnt down and, and um, we lost everything. And then, then we moved into this uh, beautiful old used single wide trailer and uh, it was tiny. It was tiny. Uh, I mean, it was just life. We lived out in the, the country. Um, I'm from a real small town. Um, we've got more squirrels than we do people there, and uh, they're actually really proud of that. They put that on. Heath, what is your point? Notice a little play on words there. And the signs everywhere, and welcome to Marionville, home of the white squirrels. Yeah, we have white squirrels. Are you racist? And uh, <laughs> and it was just just a normal life, man. We would, uh, I mean, we had an old sixties model, uh, single cab Ford pickup. I remember it was so cool, man. Uh, that was our family vehicle. We had a uh, three on the tree, you know, you get to shift like that. Just old beat up rusty truck. Did have a, uh, like an early eighties model Mustang. I remember that sitting out in, in the yard. Cause you know, where I grew up, man, everybody just had stuff sitting in their yard that your, that car did not run. That car did not run at all. All the tires were dry rotted out on it. It had 
the only thing is, I mean, it made some good use out there because there was seriously like three or four families of mice living in that thing. I mean, that was, but that was my life. I remember, uh, you know, riding bicycles forever and, and, uh, you know, ever all of our neighbors, man, just, we were, we were a rough group of kids, man. We were always getting in trouble. I was always running into uh, the neighbor's barn and stuff because they had hay and we'd go in there and make hay tunnels and, uh, ticked the old farmer neighbor dude off next door and he was always threatening to kill us and stuff like that and I was like go for it and he just never did and uh, <laughs> I don't know it's uh it never occurred to me though whenever I was growing up that we weren't rich I just I mean it was one of these things I, I mean I'm talking all the way growing up I never not even a new pair of shoes just if you couldn't find it at a garage sale, you wasn't getting it, man. I just, but it never occurred to me that life was outside of this place any different. I thought everybody was the same. Um, that all changed in fifth grade, though. In fifth grade, I uh, made made a friend, and uh, he invited me over to his house to stay the night, and uh, I was pretty excited about it, and. And I remember this particular night because it changed my life. I remember going up this driveway that was like a half mile long. I mean, it felt like, I don't know, it's probably like six, 700 feet long. It was just a long driveway and you're driving through all these fields and there's all this, this cattle and everything's manicured perfectly. And these fences are awesome. And there's this awesome barn coming up there and you come around this, this barn and there it was a massive two-story log cabin. I was like, what in the world? And I come to find out it was just this, my buddy and his dad, his mom had died whenever he was younger. So it was just those two and they lived in this house and and I remember walking in and I was, my mind was just exploding at the time because I was like, the first thing I noticed when I walked in was a gumball machine. <laughs> oh my gosh, who is this Donald Trump? <laughs> Got a flipping gumball machine, man. Didn't even take quarters. You just turned it and gum come out. All sorts of different colors. So I'm running around the house like a chipmunk just shoving all these colors of gum. And they're showing me around. And I can walk up these stairs. And it's a huge, great room. And this, lo- this loft up there. And I'm looking down below. And, and they had a jukebox in there. And his dad was into old 50s rock and roll music. And this is like the bubbles going in the jukebox. I remember going down to my buddy's room. He had his own bedroom. He had his own bedroom. And that didn't just have a, a little bitty uh, a bed. And he had a, a king-size waterbed. A waterbed. I'd never seen one of these things before. I was tripping, man. I was like, holy cow. This kid in his room had a 27-inch color television. In his room. In his room. I was freaking. He had a Nintendo with like two Duck Hunter guns on it. Dang. Went out in the living room and his dad worked for some TV company, a big old TV company back in the day up in Springfield called Zenith. Uh, had a massive, I'm talking massive. This thing must have at least been 
42 inches or so TV. No, I'm serious. You think what is your point? What does this have to do with the story of Abraham believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness? I do not see the connection at all. Things changed. I remember looking at that and go, holy cow, these people are rich. I remember going in the kitchen, man, everything smelled great, man. There was jars, old mason jars of candy everywhere. Yeah, I would go out into his backyard, a flipping trampoline, man. Never in my life had I ever been on a trampoline before. I was freaking out. He had this fort that they'd built, man. I remember you had to uh, climb up or you had to cross a drawbridge. How cool is that? A drawbridge. And then you'd climb up his ladder and man, you'd sit up there. He had a multi-pump BB gun. I like my parents would never trust me with that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, then it topped it all. I just thought my day couldn't get any better. And then I go around to his, his barn and listen, we were like 12. The kid had his own Jeep Wrangler. Not kidding. 1978, baby. It was brown. And listen, it had Yosemite Sam painted on the hood with his guns up. And this cat knew how to drive it. Oh, four, I mean, I could just go on and on. And Am I listening to a stand-up comedy routine? What is this? I remember staying the night there, and I remember the next day, like, it's not like dad wasn't texting me. We didn't have any of that junk, you know. They call up, and I'd be trying to talk. My buddy's dad's like, don't answer the phone. It's probably my parents. They probably want me to come home and stuff. And they answer the phone, and, and dad says, he'd be over to get me. And I remember whenever my dad picked me up, I go, I, I just never wanted to go home. For the first time in my life, I realized, man, not only were we not rich, we were poor. You ever just been poor? Man, I just, I remember it sinking into me. I was like, I never want to go home. And and I remember, like, from there on out, man, I would lay in my bed at night, and uh, I would look out, and I would just see things differently. And I was never satisfied from that moment on with my surroundings. I was just never satisfied. From that moment on, everything in my life had changed. Why had my life changed? Because I saw something greater out there. I saw something I, I, I knew different. I knew there was a world out there that I'd never experienced before. I knew that there was other people in it, and there was people living lives other than mine. And everything changed from that moment. My, uh, my view changed. My view changed again later on in life. Um, I got... As soon as I was old enough, man, I, I skipped town and I joined the military. And, man, that was a culture shock for some kid, like running around with squirrels, you know. It's like, man, I, I flew on an airplane, freaked me out, man. I was like, what? Like, it wasn't information overload. I think we just, our kids just have it so much different now. There wasn't no such thing as YouTube or you couldn't watch anything. I mean, like we had a TV, but we got like one and a half channels, you know, that one would come in and out sometimes. You know, that's like, it's like watching scramble stuff. We didn't have a VCR or nothing like that. I remember on special, like one night a month, we would go to the local movie store and rent a VCR. A rent, and sometimes a laser disc player. 
that gum, I don't remember how old I was on that, but I thought, man, this is the coolest thing. That well, you got these big old things, you got to slide them in there. I thought, man, I'll never get cooler than this. <laughs> but I remember joining the military, man. I got out of town and started, man, I didn't realize there was this many people in the world. I didn't realize there was this many different backgrounds in the world. I didn't realize, like I had read about and heard about cities. The biggest thing I'd really seen up to that point was a water tower. And what's your point? What does this have to do with Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 through 6 and Abraham being counted as righteous because he believed God? Seriously. And from that moment on, my view changed. I had a different point of view. Uh, Another time that my life really changed was in September of 2003. So, you know, 10 years ago or so, this was the first time, first time ever I stepped on hallowed ground. I went to a Notre Dame football game. Oh, yeah. Rudy, Rudy. And uh, man, I was just like, man, I'd seen this place on, on TV back in the day and it wasn't as big as what it seemed like, you know, on TV and stuff. I was just like, man, this place is so huge and vast and beautiful. And I saw this church up there and I was like, man, I didn't know these things existed and all this kind of stuff. But my view changed. The deal is, is that everybody has a point of view. Everybody, everybody in this room, every one of us has a point of view. And the reason that's important to us is because your point of view affects everything that you do in life. Your point of view, where you're at, what your surroundings were, what your history is, who you are, what makes you up, that makes up your point of view, and that affects the way that you look at the rest of the world. It affects the way you look at God. Point of view? Like, our points of view of God are so vastly different. We have problems sometimes. Most most Christians that I see or followers of Christ or whoever you are, maybe you don't even, most, most people, we look at heaven from an earthly point of view. We look at heaven and we, we set our eyes on things above, but we're looking at it from an earthly point of view. Whenever our, our father, our king in heaven, he's looking at the earth from a heavenly point of view, completely opposite views. So Genesis 15 is about different points of view? Huh? And so the problem, here lies the struggle with that, is because as a follower of Christ, we are operating in a kingdom. We are operating according to kingdom principles. That is very difficult for us in this room to understand because we are Americans. We, we buy into things like democracy. We think that we have a say in everything. And so whenever, uh, how many people know if you're operating in a kingdom and you think that you have a say in everything and you don't see things from the king's point of view, you're going to have a rough time. Okay, I mean, that's true. But what does this have to do with Genesis 15? Because it, the king, you got to understand something about a kingdom. The king doesn't need anybody's vote on anything. He doesn't need anybody's approval. The, the king says something, 
That's just the way it is. And so the faster or the quicker in your life that you could see things through the king's eyes, through the king, from the king's point of view, the better off in life that you'll do and the greater life you will truly have. Oh, really? What Bible verse says that if I have a different point of view, the king's point of view, that I'll have a greater life? What passage teaches this? And is this Christian doctrine? What is this? Because, man, we're just going through life from our own point of view. And, man, we're, we're... You ever feel like that, man? I don't know if I'm the only one that'll come into church sometimes. And you can sit there and you can hear all this stuff and go, man, that sounds awesome. And then you're, you're, you just, have you ever watched uh, an American tale? The little movie with the little mouse, what's his name? Fievel. Yeah. And so like you see the, these grand big things and you see everything that God has for you and you hear about it and stuff, but then you're kind of like, you feel like Fievel the mouse, don't you? Singing that little song they sang, just looking out. I mean, because sometimes we just, I just, I don't know if it's just me or what. Maybe I'm just preaching myself this morning, but sometimes I, that's okay. It's free therapy. <laughs> I didn't even go online and watch it back. I don't care. And, uh, but sometimes I just feel like a little mouse. And man, this world's like a huge ocean and continents and like mountains everywhere. And I'm like, maybe someday, maybe somewhere out there, maybe, maybe. But you know what? It's probably not for me. I'm telling you guys, I, listen, I'm on to something here. If we could gain God's point of view, if we could gain God's perspective, if we could see through the king's eyes, we would realize a couple things. One, we would realize how much he truly does love us. He's flipping nuts about us. No, I don't have a problem. With the love of God, God does love us. And scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. And when we believe and trust God for the forgiveness of our sins, God credits that faith as righteousness. Just like Abraham. That's what Genesis fifteen six is all about. We're his kids. And the second thing, that we would realize is that we're approved by him and we're equipped by him. Cause it's one thing, listen, it's one thing to know that your, your daddy loves you, but it's a completely different thing to know that your daddy approves of you. And so many, I'm just going to, on what basis does God approve of me? You need to actually show that from the biblical text. Be honest. I'm just talking to all you Christians. Because, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding men's trespasses against them. That's, it's, and God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. So if we're going to ca- talk about God's approval, we need to do that in light of the gospel. So many of you walk around defeated all the time and you think... That's for somebody else. It's not for me. Yes, God loves me. I've been singing this crap since I was three. But Jesus is so crazy about it. He approves of you. He's equipping you. He has given you everything that you need. And if you had that perspective in our lives, how many risks would we start taking to reach people for Jesus? 
Would we look at this world as a dying world? Let me tell you something. I want to be like a dying man preaching to a dying world. That's what we are. We are all dying men, and we are, we've got a gospel message for a dying world. Yeah, we do. What is that gospel message? I think you might want to push put it in at this point in your sermon. And we are approved, and we are called, we are chosen, we are sent by God. And he wants great things for our lives. He's nuts about us. He likes spoiling his kids. He's got a huge... What kind of great things are you talking about? Saying that God likes to spoil his kids. What are you talking about? Like the prosperity gospel? Huge gumball machine. (laughs) Crazy. Shove your mouth full of it, baby. Get to work. Craziness, man. I'm just sitting there wondering, how, how much bolder will we be if you really... Because you're hearing me. But you ain't feeling it. Because how much bolder would you be? How many more risks would you take in your life? How much more outspoken would you be living? If you honestly believe that, the problem is it's not your fault. It's your point of view. You want to know what the king's view is? It's the Bible. Read the Bible, man. I love my Bible. Yeah, we can find God's perspective in the Bible, and your job as a pastor is to actually be preaching it. You've given us six verses, and you're not doing a very good job of explaining God's perspective from those texts so far. I don't know what happened to the days when people used to read their Bibles. I don't know what happened to the days when, you know, pastors would actually, you know, preach the Bible. Incredible stories. Incredible stories. You want to know what God thinks of you. If you want to know what his opinions are on things, if you want to know how he sees things, I encourage you to read your stinking Bible. Yeah, maybe you might want to do better than just encourage them to read their Bibles. Maybe you should preach the word, you know, so that they can hear it from you right now. Why don't you tell us some of those stories? That's what sermon time is about, don't you think? I mean, that's what scripture says. If you don't have one, come see me. I'll, I'll throw 30 at you. Different translate. I don't care. Read your Bible. If you want to know the king's perspective, if you want to see it through the king's eyes, read your stinking Bible. That's, that's uh, you know, even though we're all, you know, a lot of us are on the same team or, or whatever, and we all claim the name of Christ and all this is... Uh, Christians all from person to person in this room have vastly different points of view. You have vastly different points of view about God. For example, have you ever heard anybody say, God will never give me more than I can? You heard that, huh? You believe that? It feels good, doesn't it? Where did you get that point of view? I'll tell you where you did not get that. You did not get that from the Bible because it ain't in there. Matter of fact, the Bible says something completely opposite. All the evidence points towards God. God loves piling more on us than we can handle by ourselves. 
So we will reach out to our Christian brothers and sisters. We'll reach out to other people and we'll depend on God fully. If you walk around thinking you can handle it all, man, some of you guys are just so defeated. The problem is, is that most of you, I'm talking most, I don't care if you've been here since day one. Problem is most of you got a jacked up view of who God is. You've got to, you just got to jacked up your own personal point of view of who God is in your life. And you know what? And you, honestly, if I sat down and talked with you about it, I'd say, where'd you get that point of view? I don't know. You ever just, you ever walk in on a kid? Oh my gosh. I've got, if he wouldn't kill me later, I'd show you a picture I snapped this week of my boy down at the creek. It was that, like that 900 degree day that we had, just freak of nature this week. And uh, we were down at the, at the creek. And man, this water, listen, in July, it's so cold, I can't even hardly put my feet into it. Oh, my son wanted to do, Elijah, he just wanted to go swimming. And uh, I was like, man, that's stupid. All right. So, and so mom's like a little nicer and stuff. And she's like, I don't care if you go swimming, but you ain't getting your clothes wet. So my boy, man, listen, all he's got on is a pair of cowboy boots and a smile. And he is sitting there splashing around in the creek, just stark naked. I mean, he just does weird things, man. Like, like I'll walk in and I don't know, just pick something. It's happened in my household. I'll, I'll find like food shoved somewhere that food should never be ever. One time I found a half a sandwich between the mattresses. <laughs> Elijah, how'd this get here? <laughs> what made you think this was okay? What's well, like a lot of us, isn't it? What made you think that was okay? What made you have that mindset? What made you have that point of view? And most of you just go, oh, <laughs> I love you, Jesus. Yeah, I think it's, it's so important. It's so important to read your Bible. Genesis 15 that I read earlier, it's all about a point of view. Um, uh, how is it about a point of view? Is the reason why you read it at the beginning of your sermon and then told all these stories about yourself so that you can distract people away from the text so that you can make it about something that it isn't about? It's interesting because... A lot had happened up to this point. It's, you know, it starts off, put verse 1 back up there if you guys will. Let's read through this. Guy. It says, sometime later. So let me tell you about that sometime later. Abram was called to leave his, his homeland and go to the land that God was calling to, to be a father of many nations. He was called at this at the age of 75. You think you got it rough. Imagine being called to a huge work at the age of 75, and a lot had happened. He had been through a ton of stuff, and he'd been hearing from God from day one that he was going to be give birth, and he's going to be the father of many nations, and he was going to bless his descendants, and he would say oh, things like, so many descendants, you can't even count like stars in the sky or the, or the grains of the sand. And Abram had been through a ton of stuff. I'm talking 10, 15 years had passed. It ended up being 20 years before his wife actually gave birth to their son. A long time had passed and said, the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, don't be afraid, Abram, for I'll protect you and your reward will be great. Go ahead. Next one. 
But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, another translation says, but look around, God. But look, what good are all your blessings to me? I don't even have a son. Now, actually, the text is about God's promises having not yet been fulfilled. That's what's going on there in Genesis. Not that uh, Abraham is saying, what good are your blessings? I haven't even had a son. <clears throat> Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham, sa- Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. God here is confirming, reaffirming the promise that he made him, even though up to this point the promise had not been fulfilled. And uh, Romans 4 makes it clear that Abraham did not uh, continue uh, did not entertain unbelief, but believed God, and that's why his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He had faith and trusted in the sure and certain promises given to him by God. We continue. He says, "Look at this man!" And, and he was rich. I mean, Abram was wealthy. He had more cattle than anybody else on the planet. He had more gold than anybody else on the planet. He had more silver than anybody else on the planet. He was rich, but he was still living as a foreigner in a strange land. He was living in a tent with his wife. He was old and crusty. And the God, do you know how babies are made? I don't know if this is. Okay. Well, you get a boy and a girl. Anyways, they love each other a lot. (laughs) And certain things have to happen before a baby's made. He's 75. He's way up in his 80s at this point. His wife used to be a hot little thing. Now she's a wrinkled little thing. He's in a tent. He said, God, what good is it? What are you talking about? That's how most of you feel, doesn't it? No. What are you talking about, God? I thought I heard you. I heard, I believe you. You thought you heard God? What you thought you heard him say? I just can't believe you. Because right now I'm just in this tent. This is my point of view. This is all I've ever No, then God does something profound. Go to the next one. Next one. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Next one. Right here. Then the Lord took Abram outside. God had to physically come down and move Abram. God had to physically come down and take him out of his surrounding. He was inside a tent. God had to physically pull his old crusty butt out of a tent and tell him, look around, look up. 
You think you know it all? Try counting those stars. I put them there. Uh, that is not even close to the tone of voice or the spirit in which the Lord delivered that that statement. God here was reaffirming his promises. And Abram got a different point of view. Uh, no. This isn't about attaining a new point of view. Listen, I'm telling you, my prayer is that for the first time, you will let God come down and move you. Most of you are just sitting back waiting on a move of God. What does that even mean? You want God to come down and move me? Move me to do what? God's just waiting for a move of you. Change your view. Change your perspective. Change the way that you see God. Change the, as soon as you change the way that you see God, you'll change the way that you see this world. So now all of a sudden we take this important passage that really deals with the central core tenets of the gospel itself. Faith and belief in God, which God counts and credits as righteous. And you're now browbeating people for not having a, um, the, a different perspective. And you want God to come down and move them so that they can have a different perspective. Heath, you don't even know what the gospel is, do you? You have no clue how this passage actually is in, intricately linked to the core tenet of the Christian faith. And you will not be satisfied. You will always strive for greater things in your life. There's always more people. It's like this. I get so aggravated. I'm out of time, but I don't care. I get so aggravated, man. People will come in and, and they will go, oh, man, I just think it's so awesome what God's done here. Man, this is amazing. Like I, uh, all the people, look how many people God saved. Man, it's pretty, pretty good. I mean, and people just say that stuff. I'm just, listen, we've got hundreds of thousands of people right in this area. And everybody says, well, there's churches everywhere. Well, it's not good enough. Since when did we become satisfied with just a few people knowing Jesus and the rest of the world can go to hell? When did we get satisfied with that church? What are you talking about? Why? Because we got a different point of view. You're looking at the, at, at the kingdom principles from an earthly mindset and going, listen, do you not think that God's not crazy about every single person? Listen to me in here. God loves you so much, so much. That he gave his only begotten son. Is that how much he loves me? So much. The problem is, is you've been in your stinking tent. Uh, I don't have a tent. Well, actually, I do, but it's in my garage. I haven't used it in a while. You don't think you can take a risk and go out there and, and do great things for God? Huh? Because you have the wrong view of them. That'd be like if I went out. What, where in Genesis 15 does it talk about that uh, Abram didn't believe that he can go out and do great things for God? It's not what this passage is about. And said, see, I've got four kids, so I've got a few to spare. All right. <laughs> How good of a father would I actually be if I said, all right, so uh, Kendall, man, she's awesome. She loves Jesus. She's got a sweetheart and all that stuff. So I know she loves Jesus. 
Elijah says he loves Jesus, but he also loves popcorn and picking his nose. All right? In combination. <laughs> then I got Charlie. Love that boy. is like Tasmanian devil reincarnated. Like, wow. And I got Tyus. He's pretty sweet. Getting an attitude. There's still hope for him, you know. Um, so how good of a father would I be if I go, I think... It would be, I would be successful as a parent if uh, two of my kids, let me pick them, uh, Kendall and Titus, Elijah and Chuck, you're screwed, all right? Two of my kids followed Jesus, and the other two didn't. How stupid does that sound to say, well, 50% ain't bad. Two out of four ain't bad. You go, what the heck is wrong with you? But yet you're satisfied looking at your neighbors and your town. So much so you, most of you haven't invited anybody or brought anybody with you to church in a long time. Are you serious? Why? Because you got to that point of view and saying, that's good enough. Crap, most of you are like me in here, man. We're just barely saved ourselves. Let me tell you something, man. If you can get the right mindset, it changes everything. People say, Heath, you're crazy. You're, you, know, you make all these weird moves and all the irrational. Listen, I've never known God to be real rational. God's never called you. How do you know it's not God? If it's normal, all right? How do you know it's not God? If it's stinking normal and boring and it isn't life-threatening and it isn't like... So it's not from God if it's ordinary, boring, and isn't life-threatening? Well, then what would you do with like the tail end of like, you know, many of the epistles that talk about, you know, husbands, love your wives, wives, uh, love your husbands, slaves, obey your masters. It seems kind of ordinary, huh? You know, children, obey your parents. Those can't be from God then because, well, they're really ordinary and they're not life threatening. Where are you getting this theology from? Because this is not from the Bible comfortable and it isn't like just perfectly in your wheelhouse but if you have that the view of a king you'd realize not only are you loved you're approved you're equipped to reach people and to do things that god wants done and to live a greater life than you could ever imagine from where you're at now. Some of you just need to get out of your tent. And so I'm asking you this morning, what's the point? What's your point? What is your point of view? What is your point of view? Because that affects everything that you do. Let's pray. And that was the sermon, which makes me scratch my head and ask the question, what was his point again? What was the point of the sermon entitled, What's Your Point? The biblical text interprets itself. Genesis 15, 6 is interpreted by Romans chapter 4. Not a hard thing to do if you're not sure how to do this. Just read both passages together. First the Genesis text and then the Romans text. And it all has to do with the gospel. But this turned into a brow beating because you have a bad perspective? Oh my. That was just truly awful and totally off topic. Not even Christian. Where was he getting this stuff from? Well, he tried to make it look like he was getting it from the Bible, but it was clear that he wasn't. So what do you think? 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. The grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.